unless you were out of the country, you probably couldn't have missed it. That by Friday morning, the British public had elected a new government. And it followed a month of very heavy campaigning, uh, in which millions of pounds were spent, uh, thousands of airmails were travelled, and countless promises were made. And now finally, Mr. Blair, Mr. Howard, Mr. Kennedy, and all the other candidates could see the results of their efforts. And you wonder whether in the cold light of day, or perhaps in the wee small hours of the morning, any of them were called to question, well, was it all worth it? Were all my sacrifices and all the costs of the campaign worthwhile? About 2,000 years ago, a man named Paul was nearing the end of his campaign. But his campaign message focused not on issues of policy, but on a person, the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. It was a message that hadn't always gained him a warm reception. In fact, in one of the constituencies that he had visited, he had been arrested and then shipped off to Rome where he now awaited trial and even faced the possibility of death. However, as we continue our series in Philippians this morning, Shining Like Stars, we see that Paul views all the costs of the campaign to be part of a worthwhile sacrifice. And to see why Paul believes this to be so, let's turn together again through this letter that he wrote to Christians in Philippi. Philippians chapter 2, again it's on page 1179 of the Pew Bibles. And because it's God's word that we want to give pride of place, we'll read the passage again. We'll be focusing on verses 17 and 18, particularly this morning, but to get the context, we'll read from verse 14 and get the section. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But, even if I am being poured out like a drink offering, on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray for a moment. Father, thank you for your word. Open it up to us, we pray. It is your living word. 
speak to our lives today. May we know your truth and respond to it. For Jesus' sake, amen. I want to highlight, with God's help, three aspects of Paul's sacrifice. And they each can be summed up by a single word. The first word is consecration. From verse 14, Paul has been utilizing some very powerful images. Images which he hopes will help him get various points across to these Philippian believers. You may recall, for example, that in verse 14, Paul had used an image from history when he says, do everything without complaining and arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. And in their minds, the Philippians would have known exactly what Paul was talking about as he reminds them of a generation of old. The Israelites, who you remember had grumbled and complained in the wilderness against the Lord. And Paul says, I don't want you to be like that. No, I want you to be distinctive from the world around you. And to stress this point, Paul uses yet another image. This time, an image from nature. Shine like stars in the universe, he says, as you hold out the word of life. By conviction and conduct, you are to be those who stand out in contrast against the dark and depraved world in the background. And if you do this, says Paul, it will be pleasing to me. Because on this great day that is coming, the day of Christ, I will be able to boast that I did not run or labor in vain. Drawing now on an image from sports. In other words, he's saying, don't let me down, folks, because I'm running this race, and how you run your race matters very much to me. Now, as we break into verses 17 and 18, where we're focusing today, Paul is continuing this theme of his labor and theirs. But he utilizes yet another image. An image which moves us from the racetrack and the arena into the surrounding ideas of the temple. And as such, we move into somewhat unfamiliar territory. Because we don't live in a time of temple, and few of us, I imagine, have even seen a sacrifice as Paul describes it. However, in verse 17, I think it should be obvious to us all that Paul is using an image that speaks of consecration. When he says there, you notice the start of verse 17, but if I am being poured out like a drink offering. Now it only takes a moment's reflection to think that Paul could have chosen from a whole range of different offerings and sacrifices with which to compare himself. But he deliberately selects an offering which is significantly poured out. Suggesting not only an offering to God, but a complete and total giving up of oneself to God. Which is exactly what consecration means, the word means. 
Now we might wonder uh, what exactly Paul is referring to. What situations in his life this pouring out refers to. Well recall Paul's predicament. He's in chains and he's facing trial. And Paul's been very candid throughout the letter that the outcome of this trial could either be life or it could be death. Though he suspects that he will remain, nevertheless he has not ruled out the possibility that he may die. And so it's interesting to note that over in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the only other occasion where we find this expression poured out, that Paul uses it in connection with his imminent death. Speaking to young Timothy, Paul says, Timothy, I am already being poured out like a drink offering and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now despite this reference, some people have thought that Paul here is in fact not speaking uh, about his death, his martyrdom. And these folks would point to the fact that, as you notice, Paul is speaking in the present and not the future tense. And so they say, well, because Paul says, I am being poured out, then if Paul is being poured out at the moment he says this, if you follow the logic, uh, then he can't be speaking of his death because he's alive when he's saying this. And so they suggest Paul is really speaking about his living struggles, a living sacrifice. Well, whether that's true or not in this case, we know that it's certainly a biblical idea, isn't it? Because over in Romans 12 and verse 1, Paul says there to Christians in Rome, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to, to what? To offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Which is often the greatest challenge, isn't it? Not so much dying at the end of life, but dying while you live. Taking up the cross daily. Denying yourself, or as Paul puts it, being poured out. A couple of months ago, I saw an advertisement on the side of a bus which read, 94% of you didn't give blood last year. Then I read it again. 94% of you, that is the general public, didn't give blood last year. And I thought to myself, in another context, what percentage of professing Christians, myself included, give blood for the cause of Christ, as it were, year by year, and day by day. I've been ask myself honestly, Colin, when was the last time it really cost you something to follow Christ? You see, too often it's easy to follow Jesus just when it's convenient. When what he asks of us doesn't impinge on our schedule or doesn't infringe on our comfort. We like to hitch a ride as long as it's free. But it shouldn't be like that. 
We need people, Christians, who are poured out. You see, I'm aware that on the one hand, there is a danger of the burnout at the side of the road. And it's not a nice place to be. Some people who don't know how to ever say no. Some people who don't know how to prioritise. Some people who don't know how ever to take a day off. Yes, there's people like that in the church. But surely the greater problem in many churches today is the very opposite. Most people like to free will. Just attend. Pray now and again. Even share Jesus every so often. As long as it's not too demanding. But is that biblical Christianity? Is that Pauline theology? Is that the path Jesus took? What about the pouring out? What about the sacrifice given to God in consecration? Now maybe you're here today and perhaps you're not a Christian. You don't know really what it means to follow Jesus. He's not your Savior. He's, he's not your Lord. And you might be saying therefore, well, this isn't very helpful because you're saying to me in no uncertain terms that there is a cost to following Jesus Christ. And you say, well, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you're not exactly selling Christianity to me. Maybe you've been weighing it all up. Well, let me say this to you. That the debits are only half the ledger. Because Paul will later say that while he has experienced some real losses, he admits that, that nevertheless to know and to follow Christ has been abundantly profitable. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Chapter 3, verse 7. This was clear to Paul in life and it was clear to him even as he faced death. I know it may not be clear to everyone in life. It will certainly become evident in the light of eternity. Because as J.C. Ryle once put it quite provocatively, a single day in hell will be worse than a whole life spent in carrying the cross. That's something to think about. So are we willing to pay the small prices to gain the great glory as we travel along the way of grace? That's the challenge of the consecrated sacrifice. Now there's a second word that can help you describe the offering that Paul is making. First of all, consecration. But secondly, cooperation. As we said, Paul is moving in the ideas of Old Testament Jewish temple worship. And Paul is comparing himself with what he calls a drink offering. Now in ancient Israel, there were many sacrifices made to God for different purposes. And most of these involved the sacrifice of animals. However, sometimes there would also be a drink offering that would be added 
to the main sacrifice. Sacrifice upon the sacrifice, if you like. If we turn back to Numbers, chapter 15, verses 1 to 10, we would find there the instructions for this sort of offering. And the gist of it was that if you were going to sacrifice a main offering, let's say a bull or a lamb, you could then pour out what was usually wine, sometimes it was water, either upon the sacrifice or next to the sacrifice. The idea being that the drink offering somehow made the main sacrifice perfectly acceptable. Complete in every way. It was, if you like, the finishing touch. Uh, Some time back, my wife and I were invited to uh, another couple in the church for a meal. Now, I'll not say who they are and embarrass them, but it was a lovely meal. And at the end of it, we had this fantastic uh, dessert uh, of creme brulee. Fabulous. Well, they had this little gadget, uh, which was like a little, a little burner or a little blowtorch. And one by one, we had the opportunity to uh, put the finishing touch uh, on our dessert by burning over the top. I really have no idea whether it improved it, uh, but it was great fun anyway. Such was the idea of the drink offering. It was a final touch. It was just to make things extra perfect. So, if we think about this, this is hugely significant. Because it says a great deal about Paul and about Paul's humility. Remember, Paul was the founder of this church in Philippi. Remember, Paul was an apostle. He was a special messenger of Jesus Christ with special authority. Yet here he is, portraying himself as the little additional offering. In other words, he's saying, the main sacrifice, the significant sacrifice, is your sacrifice. And if I somehow can add an extra ingredient, which would just perfect your pleasing life before God, by my death, then I would happily die to make that happen. What great humility. It also shows the value that Paul places on what he describes as the sacrifice and service of the Philippians' faith. The word used, therefore, their service, is the usual one in the New Testament. The same word that's used of the sacrifice that Jesus made when he died in our place on a cross same one that Paul used over in Romans 12 when he spoke there of living sacrifices of a spiritual nature. But here in Philippians, this idea of sacrifice has a very practical dimension. Because when Paul mentions it later in the letter, chapter 4, verse 18, he refers to the Philippians' sacrifice in terms of their giving to him financially. And similarly, the idea of service is also practical. Uh, it's used, as we'll see next week, to describe the assistance of Epaphroditus, who was a servant to Paul and evidently helped him in very practical ways. 
And this is a reminder, I think, that while we enter God's grace by faith alone, and on the basis of Christ's sacrifice, well, that's true, as someone has once said, faith should never remain alone. That is, Christians should respond to God's great sacrifice by making sacrifices of their own, by giving service to God and to others. And moreover, the challenge here is to have that selfless, humble spirit that Paul had in his willingness to be the little sacrifice poured out on the sacrifice and service of others. Sinclair Ferguson puts the challenge well, I think. Paul loved them. He rejoiced with them in what God had been doing in their lives. And then he asked a challenging question. How about me? Am I prepared to sacrifice myself in life or even death for the sake of my fellow Christians? Christ was. Paul was. Am I? You see, in a sense, to ask the question, is my sacrifice... We'll just pause for a moment. Come back to this uh, quote from Sinclair Ferguson. Paul loves them. He rejoiced with them in what God had been doing in their lives. And he asked, how about me? Am I prepared to sacrifice myself in life or even death for the sake of my fellow Christians. Christ was, Paul was, am I. Maybe you're in a position of leadership here in the church in some way, or maybe uh, you have a mentorship role of some kind uh, with an individual. Maybe someone looks up to you uh, and comes to you for counsel or advice. Can I ask you ever so sensitively the question, who is serving who? Do we make our sacrifices for ourselves ultimately or for the sake of others? Is our highest concern to see others grow and others develop? Or do we sometimes slip into the error of thinking that others are there to benefit us or to prop up our own leadership? That's the rub of what Paul has been saying here. Paul is showing us that we should be making sacrifices in cooperation with others and in humility for others because other people are important. Thirdly and friendly, there's another important aspect of Paul's sacrifice. It speaks of consecration. It uh, involves cooperation. But finally, it should lead to, to celebration and joy. Paul, you see, has a surprise up his sleeve for the end of this discussion on sacrifice. Because he wants the Philippians to grasp that the sacrifice and service he is directing them to is not some sad, drab affair. To the contrary, he says at the end of verse 17, if I'm being poured out, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And in verse 18, you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So this is surprising. Because we wouldn't expect that in the very same verses, when Paul has been speaking about sacrifice and service, that he will immediately connect these things with joy. 
Would we? And yet on four occasions he does that. You see, we might have expected Paul to associate sacrifice and all the costs of that with sorrow. Or maybe serving with determination and duty. But Paul goes to great lengths to point out that their sacrifice should lead to delight. As Warren Wearsby puts it, Paul sees suffering and sacrifice as doorways to joy. Now, either Paul has lost the plot completely, or he's found a plot line that some of us are not perceiving. You probably know that the word rejoice and its associates is found some 16 times uh, in this letter. Because you see, despite Paul's imprisonment, he has the big picture in view that the sovereign God is working in and through his situation. And what Paul presumably understands is, as he's been saying to the Philippians earlier, not even death itself, even his own death, can thwart God's purposes. You see, even if Paul is poured out like a drink offering, he will be with Christ, just as he desires. Remember Philippians 1 verse 21. If Paul dies, nevertheless, the Philippians will be found blameless and pure on the day of Christ. Chapter 1 verse 10. Because God works in them to will and to act. Last time's sermon. Because he who began a good work in them will carry it on to completion. Chapter 1 verse 6. Because even if Paul dies, his labours will be vindicated before a heavenly court. Chapter 1 verse 19. Because whatever happens, the Philippians will give glory and praise to God. Chapter 1 verse 11. And so Paul says, come on folks, with this big picture in mind, let's rejoice, let's be thankful. I wonder uh, if Paul were, were, were here in our church from week to week. I wonder if uh, I had the chance of a conversation uh, with him, whether he would say this to me sometimes. I don't know how exactly he would say it, in his own words, but whether he, he might say, listen up a bit. I'm pleased you're, you're dutiful. It's great to know you're, you're persevering. But you need to give some elbow room for delight, for joy in God. And maybe God is saying to us today as a church, just remember that it doesn't all depend on you. It depends on me. And even the sacrifices that you make are only useful insofar as I use them. So uh, rejoice in me. That's one of the great messages of this letter. Rejoice in the Lord always. C.S. Lewis writing to people in his day felt that he had to combat this problem. I submit that the notion that is joyless Christianity is not part of the Christian faith. Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. 
We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And folks, it might not be alcohol, it might not be sex any longer that we look to for the source of our joy. But it still might be, even as Christians, something extra to God. Because we perceive somehow our fellowship with God to be a joyless zone. And so we look for our pleasure in watching a particular TV program or in going for long walks. Nothing wrong with these things. But you see, if we take joy out of Christianity, if we extract delight in God as we were never meant to do, we begin to make idols of other things and find joy in other places. How sad it is to see sometimes people even moving from church to church trying to get a joy injection. But joy isn't found in singing in a particular music style or just meeting with the right crowd. Joy is found in God and in obedience to God, in service to God, in sacrifice to God, in a community of God's people. And ultimately it rests on the basis of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God's Son. This is where we're going to finish. Let me just address two types of people that might be here this morning. First of all, you might be here today and the sacrifice with which you need to concern yourself is not first and foremost your own sacrifice, but the great sacrifice, the only sufficient offering in all of history, the sacrifice of Jesus for you on the cross. Paul describes it very beautifully over in Ephesians 5, verse 2. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Well, over in Hebrews, the writer explains here that Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin. That is our rebellion against God. By the sacrifice of himself. Why do we need the sacrifice? Because you and I have a sin problem. A rebellious nature that shuns God. And only Jesus' sacrifice for us can remedy that. Because you see, our sin severs our relationship with God. And puts us under the awful threat of God's righteous wrath. And I wonder whether through Christ this has ever been dealt with your sin whether it's ever been dealt with in your life whether your guilt still remains on your own shoulders and the day of wrath remains a day to be feared it doesn't need to be like that you can come this morning with sorrow towards God what we call repentance put your trust in Christ what we call faith 
And you can know complete forgiveness, not through your own merit and what you do, but through Christ and what He has done for you. There will be great opportunities to do that right now and here at the table in a moment. But very finally, if you are already a Christian, then the challenge of this passage is simple and clear. What of our small sacrifices? Could we be described as those who are poured out Christians? Or are we those who are holding back, embracing a a costless Christianity, which is really a contradiction in terms? You see, the way of the cross is the way of cost. But all the sacrifices are worthwhile. So let us make them for one another and to the glory of God for our great joy. Let's just pray for a moment.